Support for Criminal comes from Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who switch to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. In July of 1910, Scotland Yard asked the public for help finding two people, a man and a woman traveling together. The man was described as, quote, an American doctor, age 50, height 5 feet 3 inches, long sandy mustache, false teeth, throws his feet out when walking, shows his teeth much when talking. The woman was described as good-looking, medium build, pleasant appearance, quiet, subdued manner, looks intently when in conversation. People reported seeing the wanted couple all over Europe. Someone said they'd seen the man wearing a straw hat in the south of France. Men and women were mistakenly arrested in Wales and in Chicago. Five months earlier, a woman had gone missing. She was a singer, performing under the name Belle Elmore, and was very active in a group called the Music Hall Ladies Guild in London. She was the group's treasurer. Her friends in the Ladies Guild had received a strange letter, dated February 2nd, 1910. It read, Dear friends, please forgive me a hasty letter and any inconvenience I may cause you, but I have just had news of the illness of a near relative, and at only a few hours' notice, I am obliged to go to America. Accept this as a formal letter resigning from the Music Hall Ladies Guild. I hope some months later to be with you again, and ask my good friends and pals to accept my sincere and loving wishes for their own personal welfare. Believe me, yours faithfully, Belle Elmore. They find it really peculiar that that she would just go off without telling them, but, uh, you know, they have no reason at first to disbelieve the the story. But then as the story starts to shift, then they become suspicious. One of the women asked Belle's husband, Holly Harvey Crippen, for an address where they could write to her in America and he told them that she was somewhere in the hills of California. He said they could give their letters to him, and he would forward them along to her. Several weeks later, at the annual Music Hall Ladies Guild fundraising ball, the women were startled to see Belle's husband show up, with a date, 
his secretary. Her name was Ethel and Eve. And Ethel is wearing this beautiful dress, and on the dress is a brooch. And all Belle's friends are there. They're at the same table with Ethel and Crippen, and they immediately recognise that the brooch is Belle's. And they're thinking, you know, what's going on here? What's he doing at the ball with his secretary? And what is she doing wearing Belle's brooch? I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. What does Crippen tell Bell's friends when they start getting concerned about about what's happened to Bell? He starts telling different stories. So almost almost from the off, he, he initially says that uh, she's gone away because a, a close relative is very ill. And then he starts telling people that uh, uh, she's gone to help sort out the estate of his own mother who has died, but his own mother had died quite a long time ago. So that doesn't really uh, uh, explain the urgency. We're hearing this story from journalist and author David James Smith. And then he starts telling people that uh, Belle has become ill, that he's heard from uh, that she's become ill while she's in the States. And uh, then he says she's got pneumonia. And then he tells people that, in fact, she's died. When Bell's friends asked how she died, he told them that she'd gotten sick on her way to the United States and died in Los Angeles. When they asked where in the U.S. to send a letter of sympathy, Holly Crippen said that wasn't necessary. Someone asked about ordering a wreath for her grave, and he said there would be no grave, that Bell had been cremated. And then her friends started asking more questions. They asked for the name of the ship she traveled on to get to the United States in the first place. He gave them a name, and they contacted the U.S. Embassy. They studied the passenger list, looking for their friend's name, but didn't find it. Then they got help searching the passenger lists for other ships, and she wasn't on those either. You know, it's like this kind of network of people, and they're all... uh they're all thinking the same thing, that something isn't right. Belle Elmore and Holly Crippen had been married for nearly 20 years. They met in New York. Now, she came from quite a humble background. She, uh, her father was Polish. Her real name was Kunigunde Makamotsky. And she was going by the name then of Cora Turner. But later we come to know of her as Belle Elmore, which was the stage name she took in London. So it wasn't long after she and Crippen started going about together, as people would say back then, that um, Crippen married her in September 1892. He worked as a homeopathic doctor. As one journalist later described it, he worked in that, quote, large industry that lies on the borderland between genuine healing and the commercial exploitation of the modern human passion for swallowing medicine. He traveled all the time for work. Uh, He was on the East Coast, he was on the West Coast, he was uh, in Philadelphia, he was in New York, he was in Los Angeles, and 
he seems to have been uh, plying his trade in a whole different set of uh, organisations. But he formed a particular association with uh, a company called Munyon's Homeopathic Remedy Company. And it was that company that uh, sent him to London to uh, set up a London office. He and Bell moved from the United States to London, where Bell made a lot of friends, especially in the music hall scene. She was said to be outgoing, with interesting clothes. Two of the bedrooms in their home were reportedly dedicated dressing rooms, where she stored her dresses, furs, and hats. She seemed to have a very vivacious and extravagant personality. A woman, a writer who met her in London, a woman called Adeline Harrison, described her in this fantastic way. She said she was a brilliant, chattering bird of gorgeous plumage. She was a, 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 a big personality. Holly Crippen was said to be very supportive of her career. He paid for her singing lessons and was listed as her manager on her playbills. We do know that uh, uh, people who knew them thought of them as being very happy and content together. And uh, I think probably if you, if you saw them together, this man's quite a quiet, sort of you know, small character... You might have thought that uh, he was a kind of a lucky man, you know, to have uh, found himself such a, a, a fascinating wife. About eight years into their marriage, he traveled to Philadelphia for work. Bell stayed home. One night, she was invited to a dinner party. And there at the table is this chap who comes from Chicago, and his name is Bruce Miller. And he also is a music hall performer. And he's travelled over from Chicago to London on his way to the 1900 Paris Exposition, where he's going to perform. He is a one-man band performer. And uh, I don't know if you know listeners will be familiar with what that might look like, but uh, it might be uh, that he had a perhaps a, a, a drum on his back, and when he you know moved his arms, the, the drum would clatter, and he would have a perhaps a mouth organ. And anyway, so it appears that uh, uh, Bell and this chap Bruce Miller started seeing each other uh, while Crippen obviously is away. He wrote her letter signed "Love and Kisses" to Brown Eyes, and later said. They kept track of meaningful dates by collecting champagne corks. In 1901, they exchanged photographs of each other. Bell reportedly kept her photo of Bruce on the piano. Then, in 1904, Bruce Miller left London and returned to the United States. And it was around that time that Holly Crippen reportedly began having an affair of his own, with his secretary, Ethel Eneve. They used to go for suppers at this uh, restaurant in the, the London's main shopping street, it's called Oxford Street, and tucked away there is this restaurant, an Italian restaurant called Frescati's at the time, and apparently they used to go there for the evening and listen to the live music and obviously sit in the corner gazing at each other, and uh, they must have been falling in love. I think that's quite clear. They kept seeing each other for years. In January of 1910, Ethel has a party and tells her friends at the party that she's become engaged. Crippen and Bell are married, but she tells people that she's become engaged to Crippen. 
and, and and more than one person gives evidence to that effect. It's really strange. And she has a ring. She's wearing it. That was at Ethel's birthday party, her 27th. And about two weeks later, on January 31st, Holly Crippen hosted a dinner with Belle for some friends from the Music Hall Ladies Guild, a couple named Clara and Paul. Crippen and Belle, by this time, have set up home in... Uh, uh, North London at a place called Hilldrop Crescent, number 39. It's kind of quite a big house. They're renting it, but uh, it's quite a grand place. It's on four floors, and uh, Crippen's invited them. They turn up, they have a three-course meal, they have some soup, they have a roast beef, and then uh, some desserts. Uh, they've had a few drinks, and then they play a round or two of whist. And then Paul, the guests, he starts to feel ill, so Crippen goes outside to find a taxi. You obviously couldn't call taxis in those days. They're all horse-drawn, and it's now about half one in the morning. And uh, Crippen and uh, Belle stand on the doorstep, waving Paul and Clara goodbye. And that is the last time that anyone ever sees Belle alive. We'll be right back. to Progressive for their support. While you're listening to the show, maybe you're also doing something else. Driving, dishes, folding laundry. I listen when I go on walks. If you're not currently driving a car, you could also be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. Save money right now from your phone. Drivers who switch to Progressive save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year, so you're protected no matter what. You can get a quote for your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over the 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Support for Criminal comes from Factor. After a long day at work, sometimes the most convenient dinner option is ordering takeout. But if you make a habit of it, it can get pricey. Factor offers restaurant-quality, ready-to-eat meals delivered right to your doorstep. Factor's meals are both nutritious and tasty, and you can choose from more than 35 different options weekly. They have a variety of meal types to fit your needs, too, like keto, calorie-smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, with plenty of delicious add-ons also. I've tried Factor meals myself. Lately, I've enjoyed their shredded chicken taco bowl and Thai-roasted vegetable green curry. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. You can also pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Head to factormeals.com slash Phoebe50 and use code Phoebe50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code Phoebe50 at factormeals.com slash Phoebe50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. When Belle Elmore's friends realized she was missing and weren't sure they believed the explanations her husband was offering, 
they went to Scotland Yard. Initially, the police didn't investigate. According to David James Smith, Bell's friends had to make a few visits to Scotland Yard and even hire a private investigator before they got the police to help. So, um, Inspector Dew of Scotland Yard is assigned the case. Inspector Dew waited eight days before visiting the Crippen's house. When he did go to the house at 10 a.m. on July 8th, Ethel Leneve came to the door. Uh, Inspector Dew and his sergeant can see that she's, uh, you know, quite discombobulated by their appearance. And uh, Inspector Dew recognises her. He's been told about her by the Ladies' Guild and about their suspicions of her, how he knows who she is. And uh, and she explains that Crippen, in fact, is at work. So they all get on the bus. This is, you know, 1910. So uh, the police aren't going around in, in cars with lights flashing. They, they, they go on the bus with Ethel down to uh, the centre of London. And uh, they go to see Crippen who Inspector Dew finds very calm, very, uh, you know, reassuring. And he says, you know, kind of, look here, man to man, my wife has left me. She's, I think she's gone off with this one-man band performer from Chicago, Bruce Miller, who I think she was having an affair with. And I was so embarrassed I didn't want to say that. So I gave this cover story. And, of course, to Inspector Dew, that sounds very plausible. So... He's taking Crippen's statement and he gets to lunchtime and so they all stop and go for lunch and they go back to the office and continue taking the statement and then Crippen and uh, Ethel go up with uh, the police back up to 39 Hilldrop Prison. The police have a very cursory look around, nothing suspicious, nothing to see here and they go away. Inspector Dew decided to go back to the house a few days later to ask some more questions. But by then... Ethel and Eve and Holly Crippen were gone. So clearly that was suspicious and that then, you know, raised the alarm and that's what made them start searching the house. They poke around a bit at some of the flooring, but they don't find anything. On the second day, they go back and uh, they get a poker and they're down in the, uh, there's a kind of coal cellar under the, so you have this uh, house with steps leading up to the front door and in, under, underneath the, uh, the steps is, is, is part of the house is this coal cellar. So they're, they're poking around in the coal cellar with this poker and uh, some of the tiles are loose. So they, 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 they lift them up and this uh, uh, terrible smell comes flooding out from underneath. As Inspector Dew put it, after digging down to a depth of about four spadefuls, I came across what appeared to be human remains. And they're kind of mixed in with some fragments of clothing. In fact, pieces of a pyjama top. I think maybe a, a white vest as well. And some tufts of hair in Heinz hair curlers. Much of the body was missing, and the remains they found were badly decomposed. One of the assistant commissioners, one of the senior officers at Scotland Yard, comes up with some cigars for the officers to, uh, to, to smoke to, uh, to disguise the terrible smell that they're all suffering. And then somebody sends one of the constables out to a local shop to buy some bleach. So he comes back with this uh, kind of bleach and they slosh it around. You know, any modern policeman would throw up their arms in horror at this you know, conduct. But things were different then. So, uh, so now they've got these remains and... Uh, 
they don't know who they are, but obviously they strongly suspect that they're Bell. And uh, so now the question is, where is Crippen and where is Ethel Deneve? This is now a, a major, major news story. So, you know, the press were absolutely in full flight in, uh, in at this time. So newspapers were very popular. They were very, very widely read. They were making a lot of money. They had lots of reporters. And, you know, they cover this story uh, 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 hugely. It's, a, you know, it's the kind of front page story. Many newspapers published Inspector Dew's descriptions of Ethel Leneve and Holly Crippen, And David James Smith says the more people read about the details of the investigation, the more critical they became of Scotland Yard. People start to realise that the police have kind of messed up, that they, you know, they had the uh, the suspects there, you know, went for lunch with them and and somehow let them go. And I I think that even in Parliament, the MPs were complaining about Inspector Dew's uh, conduct. So Dew really, you know, feels the pressure now he, to, to compensate, to make up for what he's done. Inspector Dew did everything he could to find them. Police were searching every ship departing from England and France. Because by now, the, you know, the hullabaloo, the hue and cry has gone up. Uh, you know, where's Crippen? Where's Ethel Leneve? And uh, the police are looking everywhere and they're letting all the boats know. So they, 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 the officers have gone on board and circulated this kind of wanted poster that they made. And then on July 22nd, Inspector Dew received a telegram from the captain of a ship, the SS Montrose, that was in the middle of the ocean on its way to Quebec. The captain's name was Henry Kendall. So he's aware of this couple, and he sees on this boat this apparent father and son walking across the deck, and he he notices the son squeeze the hand of the father, and he thinks, well, that's a bit strange. So he starts paying attention to them. Captain Kendall learned that the father and son were registered under the names John Philo Robinson and John George Robinson. He does all sorts of things. He engages them in conversation. I think he tries to, you know, catch them out by saying something clever. But uh, I think uh, uh, maybe the chat mentions that he works in medicine, which obviously, you know, confirms to uh, Kendall that, you know, he's probably on the right track. He looks at their picture in the newspaper and he sort of draws a a moustache to see if it's the same people. And uh, I think they cut her hair and they have to stuff some tissue in the hat to make it fit her, and they have to, you know, pin up the, uh, the trousers, and uh, everything looks a bit higgledy-piggledy, but he, he just becomes convinced that it is them. Captain Kendall's message to Inspector Dew said, quote, "...have strong suspicion that Crippen London cellar murderer and accomplice are amongst passengers. Mustache shaved off, growing beard, accomplice dressed as a boy, Voice, manner, and build, undoubtedly a girl. At the time, wireless telegrams were sometimes called Marconigrams, named after the Italian inventor Guglielmo Marconi. As the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company described it, each ship has a little cabin wherein two young men take turns waiting and watching for any word that may come rushing to them from unseen sources beyond the horizon. It was still a relatively new technology when Captain Kendall sent his telegram to Inspector Dew. Inspector Dew is convinced 
that uh, that this is reliable information. But they're you know they're halfway to uh, the ship's heading for Quebec, so they're halfway to Canada by now. So what's he going to do? So he looks at the timetable for uh, for other departures, and he discovers that there's a ship about to leave uh, Liverpool called the Laurentic, and that is going to uh, travel faster, and it will actually reach uh, Quebec just ahead of uh, the Montrose. So he gets on that ship and sets off, you know, double speed to uh, to overtake and uh, apprehend the, uh, the suspects. Inspector Dew boarded the Laurentic on July 23rd. The earlier arrival time would allow him a day to prepare before Holly Crippen and Ethel Leneve arrived, disguised as father and son. He sent a message to Captain Kendall, asking the captain not to tell anyone about the plan. Captain Kendall replied, What the devil do you think I've been doing? Inspector Dew tried to keep his trip a secret, booking his travel under a fake name. But the press found out, and reporters booked their own trips to chase after him. You know, so they're booking places on the same boat as him, and they're all, you know, making their way to Canada too. Holly Crippen and Ethel and Eve, along with the rest of the passengers of the SS Montrose, had no idea that newspapers around the world were writing about them, describing Inspector Dew's investigation and his plans to intercept the ship. Inspector Dew did make it to Canada, and as the SS Montrose approached the port, he got in a small boat, disguised as a captain, and boarded the ship. He goes into Captain Kendall's cabin, and then Captain Kendall uh, calls Crippen to his cabin. And uh, Crippen comes into the room, and Inspector Dew's there, and he says, good morning, Dr. Crippen. And so obviously Crippen immediately realized that, you know, the game's up. And uh, so he says, you know, something like, uh, I'm not sorry about this, as the anxiety's been too much. We'll be right back. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year 
at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Inspector Dew arrested Holly Crippen. Then he went downstairs to arrest Ethel and Eve. He opened the cabin door to find her wearing her young man's disguise and reading a novel. He later said that when he told her why he was there, she fainted. The police found jewelry sewn into Holly Crippen's clothes, including two of Belle's brooches. On August 1st, the Manchester Evening News reported the, quote, end of the great ocean chase. Holly Crippen was charged with willful murder, and Ethel and Eve with being an accessory after the fact. While the couple stood side by side in court at their first public hearing in London, a photographer secretly took a picture of them with a camera hidden inside of his hat. Holly Crippen's trial began a month later. It's only Crippen on trial at this stage. So Crippen and Ethel initially due to stand trial together, then the authorities start to worry that, that there might be sympathy from the jury for Ethel. And if there's sympathy for her, then that might transfer itself to Crippen. They might not be able to get a conviction. So they're obviously not that confident of their case. So they decide to, to separate out the trials and Ethel is tried later. And Crippen's trial... It doesn't last very long. By modern standards, modern trials can go on for weeks, but this one lasts for six days. The trial was quite an extraordinary spectacle. I mean, again, you know, because of the public interest that it aroused. So on the first day of the trial, uh, the the Old Bailey, where it was held, is, you know, probably the most famous court in the world, perhaps. Uh, But then it it was quite new. It only opened, I think, in 1907. This is 1910. And uh, Old Bailey is, in fact, the street outside the court and the street is absolutely, there are photographs and they show that the street is teeming with people. People come to attend the first day of this trial. In fact, so much, uh, so great is the public interest that the the authorities have issued tickets. So they have issued red tickets for the morning session and blue tickets for the afternoon session so it's a huge event uh, on in the public consciousness of the time uh, you know with great in-depth reporting holly crippen's defense attorney asked the jury not to be influenced by what they'd read in the newspapers he told the jury that crippen's friends and co-workers believed that he couldn't have killed his wife they described him as kind-hearted amiable and good-tempered The defense also suggested that whatever human remains had been found in the cellar could have been there before the Crippens even moved in. When Holly Crippen testified, he said that when his wife went missing, he thought that she had just packed up and left him. When the prosecutor asked, where did you think your wife had gone? Crippen said, she was always talking about Bruce Miller, and I suppose she had gone to America. Bruce Miller, the one-man band from Chicago, was brought from the United States to testify. You know, it's kind of must have been quite uncomfortable for him in court because he's questioned about his relationship with Bell, but he denies that anything sexual ever occurred between them, and uh, obviously he's you know allowed to go home. But the important thing is that his evidence uh, testifies to the fact that that Bell isn't still alive and, and gone off to Chicago to be with him, as Crippen had claimed. Inspector Dew also testified. 
He told the jury that he'd been asked by Bell's friends to investigate. He described the process of finding the remains in the cellar. A series of experts testified about examining those remains. One expert testified that he'd found traces of a poison called hyacinth. He described it as a powerful narcotic that could cause death in less than 12 hours. A local chemist testified that Crippen had ordered hyacinth a few weeks before his wife disappeared. He said that Crippen often bought drugs from him, including cocaine and mercury. Crippen testified that hyacinth was not uncommon in homeopathic treatments in the United States. The prosecution spent a lot of time trying to prove that the remains in the cellar were actually the remains of Bell Elmore. Three experts including a pathologist named Bernard Spilsbury, testified that they had identified a scar consistent with an operation that Bell had had years ago. An expert for the defense argued that what they were presenting was not a scar at all. The prosecution introduced another piece of evidence, the fragments of pajamas that had been found with the remains. The pajamas have a particular label, and it's there from this uh, department store called Jones Brothers on the Holloway Road in North London, not far from uh, Crippen's home. And it's a shop that both Crippen and Bell used to shop at. And uh, the material that the pajamas are, uh, are made from had only become available in the shop in 1908. And there is uh, receipt evidence of Bell having bought pajamas there in 1909. So that pretty much, uh, you know, shores up that bit of the evidence. It wasn't, uh, the remains weren't there when they moved into the home or anything like that. They were clearly, you know, put there very recently. And finally, of course, you had the evidence of these Heinz curlers, which people testify Bell used to use. And the hair shows signs of bleaching. We know that Bell used to bleach her hair. So all in all, the case is, you know, it, it, there, there isn't a complete body. But the evidence is kind of overwhelming that, that Crippen is responsible. The jury deliberated for 27 minutes. And on October 22nd, Holly Crippen was found guilty of willful murder. He was sentenced to death by hanging. Ethel Leneve's trial started a few days after Crippen's ended. In her defense, Ethel Leneve's lawyer said she'd had the supreme misfortune to have come across one of the most dangerous and remarkable men who have lived in the century, a man to whom, in the whole history of the psychology of crime, a high place must be given as a compelling and masterful personality. And he defended her as if she was some, you know, Dickensian heroine, uh, you know, uh, corrupted and mistreated by this evil doctor. In their case against her, prosecutors introduced Ethel Leneve's former landlady. The landlady wasn't sure about exact dates, but she testified that in late January or early February of 1910, around the same time of Belle Elmore's disappearance, Ethel Leneve had come home one night extremely upset. The landlady said her whole body was trembling. I saw that she was in a terrible state and asked her to tell me what was the matter. She did not speak. The landlady testified that in the morning, Ethel Leneve was crying and talking about Belle Elmore. She said, When I see them go away together, it makes me realize my position, what she is, and what I am. 
As one paper presented it, the question before the jury was, did Ethel and Eve know when she assisted Crippen's flight that he had murdered his wife? The jury deliberated for 18 minutes and came back with a not guilty verdict. I found that really fascinating because it was quite clear that if they'd chosen to, the, the Crown could have put forward a case that would have made her look very guilty. Winston Churchill, who was then the Home Secretary, gave her permission to visit Crippen in prison. She had a miniature locket made to hold a photo of him. He appealed his conviction, and on November 5th, 1910, a panel of three judges rejected his appeal. His lawyer sought a royal pardon, circulating a petition for people to sign, based on the argument that there was no way to know the identity of the remains in the cellar. But it didn't work. A farewell message signed by Crippen was published in a newspaper on November 20th, 1910. It read, I desire to make a last appeal to the world, not to think the worst of me. I beg them to remember that I have been condemned on inconclusive evidence. I still maintain that I was wrongly convicted and my belief that facts will yet be forthcoming to prove my innocence. Three days later, he was hanged. Hello? Hello, this is Phoebe calling. Phoebe Judge. Phoebe Judge, how are you? I'm fine. This is forensic and clinical toxicologist John Trustrail. Do you remember when you first heard the name Crippen? Oh, boy. Uh, Crippen, I've been studying this case for 40 years, so a long time ago. And uh, the reason that uh, I was interested in it was because this is the second most famous murder case in England after Jack the Ripper. Around 2008, John Trestrail learned that some of the forensic evidence from Holly Crippen's trial was saved on slides in the Royal London Hospital archives. And uh, we contacted them and said, would you be willing to loan us one of the slides from the grave? Uh, And this slide would have been used as evidence in Crippen's trial in 1910. And uh, they did. He wondered if anyone had applied DNA analysis to those slides and started investigating whether it would be possible to test them now and compare them to genetic material from a relative of Bell Elmore. What if we could find a descendant coming down that line that was carrying the mitochondrial DNA? Then we could compare the exemplar, as they would be known, with the remains that were discovered in the coal cellar at Hildrop Crescent in London from the crime. He partnered with a genealogist and a forensic scientist, They identified three relatives. And it was a shock to me that it was not a match. In their 2010 report, published in the Journal of Forensic Sciences, John Trestrail and his colleagues wrote, quote, Based on the genealogical and molecular data presented here, the remains obtained from the Crippen cellar in 1910 were not those of Dr. Crippen's wife. (laughs) 
So in other words, the evidence used to convict Holly Crippen in that trial, which led to his execution by hanging, was invalid. So what does that mean? What it means is that the Crippen is no longer proven guilty. Now, he may be guilty. He may have killed his wife and she's somewhere else, but the evidence, the remains found in that grave were not her. They also did another DNA test on the sample to determine the sex of the person it came from. And it turned out that the tissue in that slide is male. What about people who say that the samples, you know, have to be contaminated? Um, Or, you know, the police potentially brought bleach to the cellar? You know, why would we think that 100 years later we'd be able to actually get real conclusive data from, from something like this? Well, I can tell you that they've extracted DNA from mammoths and from Neanderthals. So, yeah, millions of years can go by and the DNA still exists. The forensic scientist who he worked with told the BBC, quote, If I had any doubts whatsoever, I would never have come out with it. And so far, the British refuse to accept the results. They say either, number one, uh, it's invalid which we've proved it is not invalid. You are, they also say, well, this is, the case is 100 years old. Who cares? And I said, I'll tell you who cares. Those people who carry the name Crippen, they've been living with this cloud over their head for 100 years. Justice does not have a time limit. If you can no longer prove that Holly Crippen murdered his wife because those are her remains, you have to deal with that. One genealogist responding to the findings has said that the genealogical work done to find relatives of Bell Elmore and test their DNA is problematic. Bell didn't have a birth certificate. She went by a lot of names. David James Smith believes that whatever male DNA was found on the slide most likely belonged to the pathologist who studied the sample and testified about it in court in 1910. Because in those days, people didn't bother wearing gloves or, you know, taking any care not to contaminate samples. So you disagree with that finding? Yeah, I, I, I disagree very strongly with it because there's such powerful evidence that uh, that, that was Bell in the cellars. Remember the evidence at the trial. It's the, you know, the highest scene that Crippen himself had bought was found in the remains There was the Heinz curler, the bleached hair that all, you know, associates with Bell. And then, you know, most powerfully, the uh, the pajama fragments that, uh, uh, you know, that very particularly connect to the purchase of the uh, pajamas of Jones Brothers by Bell herself and give the timing of 1909. So the idea that that those remains really were anyone else but Bell, I just think is, you know, fanciful and and doesn't bear any proper scrutiny. What happened to Ethel? After Crippen had been hanged, people, she was the subject of, uh, you know, fascination. People wondered where she'd gone. She kind of disappeared from view. She went to Canada, but she hadn't been there long. She came back. She took 
Crippin's name, Harvey, that was his middle name, Hawley Harvey Crippin. And she called herself Ethel Harvey. And she she rented a, a flat in South London in a, an area called Ballam. And then uh, around 1915, she met and married a man called Smith. They had two children and Ethel gave her husband a, a, a fob watch to wear and he always wore it and what he didn't know was that it was Crippen's fob watch. Her husband never knew that she was Ethel Leneve. As far as he knew, she was Ethel Harvey, a synonymous person. He didn't realise that she'd been involved in the you know sensational crime of the century and neither did her two children. She never told them. She died in 1967 and uh, only one or two members of her own extended family ever knew who she was. In 1920, the Crippen case was featured as part of a series of books called Notable Trials. Each book summarizes famous English cases, including the trial of Mary Queen of Scots. It begins... Most of the interest and part of the terror of great crime are due not to what is abnormal, but to what is normal in it. What we have in common with the criminal is what makes us view with so lively an interest a fellow being who has wandered into these tragic and fatal fields. The author described Holly Crippen as an unremarkable little man, courteous, hospitable, Belle Elmore is described in dramatically harsh terms, untalented, quote, robust an animal, loud, aggressive, seems to exhaust the atmosphere and is undoubtedly exhausting to live with. You know, her character and personality were completely destroyed, uh, not just by Crippen in court in his evidence, but by the way that she was caricatured. So you have this mild mannered little man and downtrodden husband, this overbearing, over-demanding wife, you know, uh, and, and, and that almost, it's as if that's somebody's trying to justify why he killed her. And I think that's a caricature of their marriage. And it does seem like it was a successful marriage. And it must have gone sour in some way. They both seem to sort out, you know, comfort elsewhere. But she had a pretty fulfilled life. You know, she had a role with these friends. She was much loved and admired by her group of friends. And uh, they missed her. There was a funeral held for Belle Elmore in the fall of 1910. There were said to be many flowers. It had all been arranged by her friends at the Music Hall Ladies Guild. Criminal is created by Lauren Spohr and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Katie Bishop is our supervising producer. Our producers are Susanna Robertson, Jackie Sajiko, Libby Foster, and Megan Kinane. Our technical director is Rob Byers. Veronica Simonetti mixed this episode. Engineering by Russ Henry. Julian Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at thisiscriminal.com. David James Smith's book is Supper with the Crippens, the true story of one of the most notorious murderers of all time. 
We're on Facebook and Twitter at Criminal Show and Instagram at Criminal underscore podcast. And we're also on YouTube, where you can go back and take a listen to some of our favorite past episodes. That's at youtube.com slash criminal podcast. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Discover more great shows at podcast.voxmedia.com. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Thanks to Progressive for their support. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who switch to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.